Arms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, thank you for joining us. In this episode, Muazzam Mir speaks to two incredible and accomplished women, Samia Buena and Rabia Hawa, about conservation and the protection of wildlife and our responsibilities towards the environment as Muslim travellers. Some of you may remember, in a story on Instagram earlier this year, Muazzam reported that there were plans to build a coal plant on the tiny East African island of Lamu. It would have potentially dire consequences for the health of locals and the environment in general. That story generated quite a response from people who were eager to find out more and wanted to know what they could do to help raise awareness. Those plans for now have not gone ahead, thanks to locals who mobilised, took the authorities to court and were successful in halting those plans. Samia herself played a role in this. Anyway, as an organisation that focuses on spiritual and alternative travel, we feel it's important to use our platform to raise awareness of such environmental issues and also highlight the fact that as Muslims, we have a responsibility to protect the earth. For that reason, Muazzam decided to contact fellow Kenyans, Samia and Rabia, for what we hope will be the first of many conversations on conservation and our responsibility as Muslim travellers. So Samia Buena is the founder of Halal Safaris, a responsible luxury travel company catering to Muslim travellers and providing Islamic heritage trips in East Africa. Samia is also an environmental activist who worked with the organisation Save Lamu and co-found the Decolonize campaign, where she now sits as a board member to advocate against coal power production and mining in Kenya. She is, not surprisingly, the recipient of numerous awards. Meanwhile, Rabia Hoa is a wildlife conservationist. She successfully launched East Africa's first non-profit organisation focused on ranger empowerment, welfare and facilitation. She conducted a cross-country trek, Walk with Rangers. In 2015, she was selected to participate in a conversation with civil society hosted by then-President Barack Obama. She was then selected by his Young African Leaders Initiative and is now a Mandela Washington Fellow. Both our guests have busy schedules, so we're really grateful they made time to speak with us in the middle of their day. Just a heads up, you will hear the many sounds of daily life going on in the background. Assalamu uh, alaikum, guys. How are you? Um, so I think that before we dive straight into like our, our discussions, we're going to let's let's talk a little bit about um, just you guys in general. So um, Rabia, tell us um, who you are and you know how you came into working in conservation. What, what inspired you? What motivates you? Where do you find your passion? Um, Jazakallah for the opportunity to speak on your forum. Um, and yeah, I kind of just stumbled into conservation, really. My previous work was in the media. So I was actually reading news for um, <clears throat> a Turkish uh, channel. And then thereafter, I was writing in the newspapers. But I always had a passion for animals. Of course, my dad really inspired me from a very young age. Like growing up, he would always make sure he was taking us to national parks and making us swim in rivers and doing all sorts of crazy things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never actually had um, meals at home on weekends because I remember my parents always taking us out for a drive somewhere <clears throat> to the bush to have picnics. 
um, and we'd have picnics with just wildlife around. At that time, of course, um, things were very different in Kenya. I grew up in uh, the 80s. I was born in 1982. And so growing up, we had um, a lot more wildlife than we do today. Uh, and of course, it was uh, it was a very different experience, you know, going on off beaten paths and um, just experiencing that with your family. It made us <clears throat> much closer, but it also um, exposed me to animals. And you know, my parents would always teach me to uh, not kill spiders, for example, in the house or so any other insect. Like if it was a beetle or anything else, um, we would always like put a cup over it or a bowl over it and a, a paper underneath and then just take it outside. It doesn't cost you anything to do that. But the fact that you are remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your treatment of every creature that lives um, and has been given life by the creator, uh, you know, it really kind of moved me towards um, doing it in a bigger way. And uh, again, I never really had <clears throat> anything in my um, in my plan, as it were, to be full time in conservation. Um, but between in 2009, I actually did an interview of a, an organization, which um, sadly today is uh, a bit not, you know, working on the ground. Mm -hmm. But uh, we went to the Maasai Mara, uh, had the opportunity to go to the Mara after so many years. Um, and I was really looking forward to it. I thought it would be a great touristy experience. I'm going to see lots of animals and, you know, and here I am trying to pitch a tent for the first time in my life. And within 15 minutes of trying to do that and arriving at the camp, we had a ranger's vehicle that just rushed in and they just said, get in the car. We've got to go. We've heard 13 gunshots. And here oh, I am wow. thinking, wait, why are we going towards where there's gunfire? And at the, on the other hand, <laughs> I'm thinking there's lions around. I'm not going to be left on my own. You know, I'm completely new to this. <laughs> so I hopped in the car and we drove for quite a while to a place called the Poto Forest, where I saw my first poached elephant. And uh, she was a very young um, elephant, so she wouldn't have even had tusks more than 30 centimeters. It just seemed like such a waste of life. Awesome. And just the brutality of how she had been killed, like all the gunshots, all the bullet holes on her side, like she had struggled for a really long time just you know, fighting for her life. Um, and then they just followed the blood trail and hacked her face off mm. to make, to harvest ivory, to make things like bangles and, you know, God knows what else. Um, and that really uh, changed everything for me. From then on, I started volunteering with the Kenya Wildlife Service, KWS, mm -hmm. um, initially working with orphaned animals. And again, you know, that kind of moved me to learn why were they orphaned? Uh, many of them were due to human wildlife conflict, but many more came in due to poaching. The mothers were just killed and the babies were left, you know, without a mother. And then they came to us. And, and I have to say, we we didn't have a very high success rate. You know, it's very different for a human being to try and raise a cheetah cub successfully right. than a, a mother cheetah raising her cubs. You know, it's a very different um very different interaction. You're not able to provide what the animal needs, but you try your best, you know. And some of these babies came when they were just, you know, like two days old, three day old cubs, haven't even opened their eyes, have no idea where mom is. 
um, you know, and some people have just killed her to cut off her skin and sell in a market somewhere. So that really then moved me towards working with rangers and, you know, like what I do today, which is my walk with rangers organization and initiative, um, which is aimed at just supporting. So, I mean, you essentially were working in media and um, you, you, because of one incident you had, you sort of completely transformed your life. You were passionate about animals before, but more so on the, on the, you could say tourist perspective of it, but this incident with this elephant totally changed the path of your life. I mean, how could it not? It, believe me, if you were there and you saw that, I, it would change your life too. Um, I I firmly believe that because it's a very, you know, you almost just like I remember just standing there and initially I was I was very confused. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't understand why this is happening. There's so many rangers on the ground. There's so many organizations in the Mara. Mm-hmm. Why am I looking at a dead elephant? I was I was really angry. I was really hurt. I was really confused. Um, <clears throat> but the whole time that all of these millions of thoughts are going through my head, I'm just heartbroken. I, I couldn't stop crying. I went and just hid behind a tree because the rangers started looking at me a bit funny. That's, that's very har- it's a very harrowing um, and inspiring at the same time story, Rabia. I want to I want to bring this uh, the question over to to Samia. Then I want to know about about your life and and what brought you to the place that yeah. you are at the moment. Um, so tell us a bit more about who you are and how you got involved in the halal travel industry and generally the halal tourism industry. Uh, thanks, Azam. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be here, and especially with Rabia, uh, who we, we've met a couple of times. But uh, I think uh, just to talk a little bit about my background. So Halal Safari is it's quite new. It's more for me, um, but I, I, a way to figure out how all the things in my life that I've been working on balances together. And the mm-hmm. three things are. Uh, tourism um, and getting people to beautiful the, uh, to visit the beautiful country that we have, mm-hmm. and um, two is creating livelihoods for the local communities, and three is conservation. So I've been working in those three sectors uh, throughout almost uh, most of my life. But what I put a lot of credit to it is actually my parents. <laughs> Funnily, similar to Rabia. Mm-hmm. So both my parents are actually conservationists, mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm a seasoned, you could say, um, conservationist because my my mother worked for the Kenya Wildlife Services for over two decades. And uh, my father worked for the National Museums of Kenya for over two decades. So in between school holidays, in between um, times when you're having breaks, it's either I'm at the KWS offices or I'm at the (laughs) museums. And how we were told to pass time is, you know, when we start making a lot of noise in my parents' office is they would tell the secretary, you know, take her to the snake park. Just keep them busy. <laughs> and so in the end... <laughs> take them to the snake park. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, if it's... Um, if we have friends or cousins who are visiting us over the holidays, it would always be, oh, yeah, we should go visit our mom in the office and then see the park while we're at it. So you have, at that time, now they have the safari walk at Nairobi, but before that it was just the orphanage. So it was, okay, go to the orphanage and then uh, I'll come pick you up after work. So most of my extra time actually outside school was spent either at the KWS or the museums. And both my parents um, are conservationists. And I remember the first time, so I grew up, uh, the first four years of my life, I was in Lamu. Mm-hmm. 
And then the first house we moved in into Nairobi was actually in Gong Forest. Oh. It was really surreal for me, uh, you know, the, coming from the islands and then you come into this cold place and we, you know, you couldn't leave the doors open after six. You're not allowed to leave the house because it could be um, cheetahs um, trespassing the estate. Uh, and it, it was it was quite interesting. And, and then we had this living room where the the monkeys would peep whenever we're watching TV. Mm-hmm. And and so for, for me, I think I, I can't even go back how far in terms of what, how I saw the appreciation of how you could, you could actually have a balance between human and wildlife interaction that wasn't invasive mm-hmm. and, uh, and wasn't, uh, you're, you shouldn't be encroaching on them. You should kind of co-share the space. So that experience of watching TV with a monkey and, and not actually, and, and also at the same time going to see uh, uh, the national park and going to the National Reserve and being in their space, that animals can come in your space and you don't chase them away. You don't keep, they're not pests. Mm-hmm. We came into their space first. Mm-hmm. We encroached their space. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, if, if a monkey came into our kitchen and stole and stole them uh, or took, not even stole, but took the bananas, mm-hmm. we're not throwing stones at them or, or trying to kill them. You know, but that instead, story is so yeah. apt to what just happened to me a few hours ago. So I was sitting in my <laughs> living room and I was on the phone to a friend uh, and I suddenly I started screaming and my friend must have wondered like, what is going on? Because I was shooing a monkey out of the living room and I, ch- and I chased the monkey out of the living room because I was, I was concerned that it was, it was going to like, you know, push something over or something. And because uh, I live, um, I live in, in, in Nairobi, but I, I also live near, um, uh, I live near a forest as well. And and the monkey left, and I, you know, had to shut all the windows in the house, and so nothing comes in, and and, and um, you know, perhaps maybe, uh, you know, urinate somewhere or anything. And so uh, somebody goes to me, you know, why don't you just cull them? And I said, how can how can I cull all the monkeys in a forest in this forest just because <laughs> I I built a house here? Like, I mean, I'm living in I'm living in their forest. You know what I mean? Like, they're, exactly. they're just they're just being what monkeys are. And I just exactly. find this I find this. Uh, this contrasting mindset to be so, you know, subhanAllah, so, so interesting because I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my personal story as well. I, like I um, grew up in Nairobi. I grew up near Nairobi National Park. My grandmother um, told me that when she was a child, um, her father used to actually drive um, along the road, um, along what's Langata Road, which is, which leads towards Nairobi National Park. And they would just come out of their car and sit on, on, on the top of the car. And on the other side of the road, meaning like just across the road, there were lions. There would be lions just sitting there and they would just sit there and, and watch the lions just, you know, sitting, enjoying their day. And nobody would bother anybody. But at the same time, when, I mean, as I grew up, I used to, I, I visited even here right now in Nairobi, I visited many Muslim houses. And as you as you enter the houses, you find like trophies, like animal trophies, and you find like you know uh, lion heads, you find like um, zebra heads, and this is this was all done within like I think around the sixties and the seventies when uh, perhaps we can ask um, uh, I don't know if uh, when was when was the the ban on on heavy poaching uh, um, put in because when I when I speak speak to these elderly people they still don't seem to have any regret for, for what they did. So w- when would you say that, that this, this shift in the mindset of Muslims uh, came, came to being, where, where we started becoming more sort of um, ethically conscious and I would say religiously conscious at, at that as well? 
I, I actually don't think that um, that the Muslim community that was involved in hunting have attained that level of ethical conscience for a majority part because if you meet them today, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know I have to say this because we've had a lot of challenges in conservation. Uh, hunting was banned. Uh, completely mm-hmm. in uh, the late 80s in Kenya and it remains completely unlawful to hunt any animal in Kenya today mm-hmm. including uh, marine species as well um, but you find that a lot of people just don't respect that you know you'll have uh, and I, it, it hurts me that the people who are doing this are Muslims who mm-hmm. are aware that it is against the law, firstly, and secondly, it's, it's just cruelty. Yeah. You know, they, uh, they'll go for a weekend with their friends to the Shamba. Some of them happen to own very big ranches mm-hmm. on which there is wildlife, um, and they will hunt. And, uh, you know, I want to say, every time that I have raised this topic of hunting in an Islamic forum or a Muslim, uh, you know, gathering, I'm always told that the Prophet ﷺ used to hunt, so it's okay for us to do so. People need to understand that the Prophet ﷺ only hunted on a need basis. Mm-hmm. He hunted for food and he did never, he never once did he maim an animal or go out of his home with the near or making an intention to have some fun with the boys, mm-hmm. which is what the Muslim brothers are doing today and they need to stop. Yeah, I mean, I, I thoroughly uh, agree with you. I mean, we can't, we can't hunt except for um you know for food but what you what you find and and even then i mean i i know some i know of in some parts of the world where there are muslims who um go out to hunt for food but at the same time they do complain that you know it's very difficult to shoot an animal um from a very di- a very large distance and then you have to get to the animal in time uh before it completely dies in order to do the, the you know in order to um to to uh, do the sacrifice and, you know to yeah to, to to do the slaughter before the animal completely dies and i can only imagine then um what what excuse do people have when when they shoot a an animal that's not even halal to eat like a lion it's usually you know the big cats big game which, which nobody really eats um and then that to to maim it to you know to 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 cut its head in a way that's it's it's not even um it's not even you know acceptable in our religion uh, just so that you can preserve the head in a way, so that you can mount it on your on on a, on, a, on a you know on a wall somewhere. I don't understand how. I've heard this example as well many times that oh you know our um it's it's halal to kill animals so or it's acceptable in our religion. So I don't know why that sort of gives a, a green light to go around you know shooting giraffes and elephants. I really don't see where they make that stretch. And you know one thing um, uh, to add to that that one thing we forget is that at the end of the day we. We are using um, religion mm-hmm. to justify doing something uh, without consideration of what is what is the agenda, what is your near. You know, if you have situations like I've, I've seen situations where uh, somebody is hunting because there is no food available to them other than the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to use religious uh, um, like fatwas or religious justification, but we have butcheries, you have <laughs> any meat you can choose from. And if you really want to eat wildlife, you have farms that actually farm wildlife. You know, you have farmed buffaloes. It's not wild buffalo. So, so what would cause you to ignore all of that? And and it, it takes um, 
I think partly it's ignorance and partly it's maybe not not thinking about the future. And um, I, it's it's something maybe with more and more Muslims being engaged about it. I had a, a funny experience related to that because I was trying to sell a tr- the concept of safaris to somebody in Oman. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were saying, oh, uh, what? And they were asking me, is uh, do I have a hunting safari? And somebody else also in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked me, do I have a hunting safari? I said, well, if I had a hunting safari, then I don't think I would call myself halal safaris, because I, I don't consider that to be a halal halal safari when you're actually paying for the fun of killing uh, a being. And so to anyone who's listening to this, who's wondering, I know I don't sell halal hunting <laughs> safaris because they don't exist. <laughs> so I, you know, I have to agree with you, Samia, on that point very strongly. Um, you know, again, the, the excuse keeps on coming up and I want to call it an excuse because that's exactly the context in which it's being used, that the Prophet wasallam used to hunt, the Sahabas used to hunt, so why can't we, you know? And uh, one, if you're going to equate yourself to what they used to do, why don't you start by following the sunnah of how he used to treat animals, right? You find a lot of times when people go on these hunting safaris, um, you know, they're hunting animals, which is forbidden in Islam to hunt because you cannot eat them, Mm -hmm. right? Things like lions, lions, things like elephants, you know, who eats an elephant, really? Um, But it's also... It's just there, there, there. It's it's much like this this macho sort of machismo attitude that oh I I killed an elephant you know I killed a lion I'm 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 more powerful than you know I'm stronger than a lion but then they the the twisted thing is you hide behind uh, our prophet uh, which is one of the most disgusting things you you know imaginable we talk about how people you know do horrible things in the name of religion but I think we sort of don't talk enough about how people destroy the environment and, you know, destroy um, the, the living the, the living creatures in the name of religion. And I, I totally agree with you that we actually need to um, speak out more against that. And so, yeah, sorry for in- interrupting you over there. No, that's okay. But, you know, they're not doing it in the name of religion. They're using religion as a cover-up yeah. to justify what they're doing. The Nia is not there when they leave the home that I'm going to hunt to provide for my family. There's also, I believe, uh, an ayah in the Quran that states, um, you know, you, it, it's unlawful for you to hunt a wild animal Right. Uh, unless you're a wayfarer in the desert and you have no other option. And this is something that people have to look at, especially among the Muslim ummah, because Allah has provided us, Alhamdulillah, has provided us with so many different uh tastes and so many different flavors for us to experience, not just from uh, animals, but also vegetables, you know, lentils. Mm -hmm. There's there's such a variety of food. And we should really be grateful for what we have and not just uh, go beyond our means, because that's not uh, Islamic. And also in countries where it's illegal, you're supposed to be following the the law law of the the land. land upon which you are. You know, Mm -hmm. unless it's something that's infringing on your rights as a Muslim, like, oh, you can't pray, then it's different. Right. But here it's, you know, what what does it cost you not to break the law and hunt an animal when your Nia is not even clean? You don't have a Nia to feed your family. You're just hanging out with the boys. You want to shoot a a bunch of bucks, you know, um, to have a a nyama choma, like a barbecue Mm -hmm. on the weekend. And, you know, and during the time that you're doing that, you're also maiming 
so many other animals, dozens of animals in some cases. I had a little boy who phoned me once when I used to work um, in the media. He called me because, you know, people around knew and still know that I'm involved in wildlife issues. And I promise you, a young boy, I would say about not not more than 14 years old. Mm-hmm. He phoned me and he was so distressed because he had just come back from a hunting weekend with his father. Oh. And I know the family, by the way, Muslim family. And he says, uh, you know, I just want to ask you, um, is it is it okay for uh, my dad to hurt animals? And I said, in what way is your dad hurting animals? And he said, we went for, we went to my uncle's uh, Shamba Mm -hmm. and my, uh, my uncles and my dad went hunting, but I was in the car and they shot a pregnant Impala, right? Uh, And then they chased her for a really long time. And when they saw that she was pregnant, they realized they couldn't slaughter her. So they just left her alone. But by that time she was bleeding so much on her leg. And I don't know if you can help this, this Impala. So I asked him, can you give me the location of where you went? Of course, it's a 14 year old boy, Mm -hmm. you know, what he doesn't know what details I would need to be able to go and assist this animal. Uh, He doesn't know what information to give me. He was just really distressed that he had witnessed something like that and that his father and his family were doing it. I just wanted to ask you now, um, because of this unfortunate phenomenon of hunting and of illegal hunting, what, what is, what, what, what's the, what have the, what have the consequences been on um, species of of wildlife in in Kenya and in in Africa in general? What, what what are, what are the ramifications that we are facing with today? I mean, such a severe decline in, in all species, um, including plains game species. You know, people say that impalas are like goats. They reproduce very fast. Mm -hmm. This is not true. Uh, Yes, they do reproduce, but You know, you have to understand that they're in a wild ecosystem. They're not in a protected farm where you have a fence around them. They've got lions and other predators, crocodiles, all sorts of things predating on their young and predating on them as well, which really reduces their um, chances of success, uh, you know, to adulthood for the young ones. Um, So people need to understand that. Yes, Allah has created everything in a balance, Mm -hmm. but we have created an imbalance um, by irresponsible behavior towards the environment. And, you know, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah states that he put us on the earth as khilafah, right? We're supposed to be we're supposed to be custodians of the earth and uh, show kindness to all living things. But. How many of us are really doing that? How many of us are creating an imbalance by stamping on a bunch of ants or spraying them with insecticide because, oh, we don't want them on our sugar bowls? Do you not think <laughs> about, you know, really, it's it's not just about the lions and the big glamorous beasts like the elephants. It's about the other little ones too. Like I had a, a lady who phoned me and she's, you know, uh, and she was trying to uh, mashallah like i i really applaud her because she told me that um you know the in her home she has like a lot of ants like sometimes they come by season right mm-hmm. and yes like i have them too right now like they keep getting into my biscuit jars and everything and it's really annoying um and they get into the sink and everything else but you have to try and 
remove them as much as possible without harming them. Like she just wanted to spray her whole entire garden and everything else with insecticide. I was like, why would you do that? One, it's toxic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so toxic. You're going to kill everything. And secondly, you're going to harm your your young children because she was afraid that the kids are going to pick them up and eat them. I said, well, my I have a nephew. And when he was two years old, he picked up a slug and took a bite. Really, like that's the most disgusting thing you can ever think of. So I think an ant is not so bad. But, um, you know, I think we really need to develop a new state of consciousness Mm -hmm. to the environment and to all living things, including insects, including, you know, think of when Prophet Suleiman and his army were walking and the ant, he heard the ant Mm -hmm. because Allah gave him the ability to hear animals and understand their speech. And there was an ant in the way that, you know, went and warned all the other ants in the colony and said, you know, uh, all of you go go to safety. Prophet Suleiman is on his way with mm-hmm. his army. So you, you might get trampled upon. And they all scurried into the holes, you know. And look mm-hmm. at, just look at how an ant is, right? The ant did not say, I'm going to warn my family only. The ant warned all of the ants and that's how we should try and we should learn from them as well just by observing them you learn so much how they help each other how they are always like they'll warn each other uh, when there's danger around and we should really try and emulate that in our own lives and and warn each other about these these things that could be dangerous for our akhira like today Mm -hmm. if if i didn't say this and you were about to step on an ant and you don't do that like you know, maybe Allah will give you some reward for that in your akhirah. I, I just wanted to also um, uh, add on to what uh, Rabia was talking about earlier with the balance. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we tend to focus so much, especially when you talk about conservation, safari, we tend to focus so much on the animals that we can see, on the physical, tangible, the, the big five. Uh, but the balance of everything, it's what, what every living being, uh, the part you have to play. And even um, in terms of the impact, it, we, we look at so much on the short-term impacts, but we ignore the long-term impacts. And that's why I think for me, my particular interest is how do we consider climate change and what role do we have in, in climate change in general and what impact does that have on our ecosystems? And I think for me personally, the part that I think the most um, heart-wrenching and and uh, what you call it eye-opening experience was I had the opportunity to work in uh, in Marsabit for three years in right. northern Kenya, yes, yes. which is the far north of Kenya and very dry, very mm-hmm. arid, mm-hmm. and uh, it's considered uh, the cradle of mankind uh, in terms of you know the the number of fossils and number of fossilized uh, forests there, mm-hmm. and you know seeing small children as well as adults who have never seen a giraffe and and actually tell you that our grandfathers told us that these animals that used to exist that had long necks i mean like a mythical creature of some sort and and so when when i was there we, we uh, there was a park it's called sibiloi national park and um, the uh, i was working with uh, research institutions where they actually go and look at the fossils, uh, um, what is there, and, uh, and and actually try to find a way on how the communities can can learn from it. And so what I was working on at that time was creating um, awareness opportunities 
and as well as community development opportunities so that the locals can also learn about their history. And the moment you see a, a 10 meter long fossil of a crocodile mm-hmm. that used to exist, that is no longer there. And you see a tusk of uh, what should have been an elephant that's three times the size of an elephant today. And it exists in the same soil. So you have these Kenyans who the most they've seen is fossils of animals. No more, there are no more elephants there. There are no more giraffes there. There are no more buffalo there. But they have these fossils of these big animals, as well as some small ones, that used to exist. And what has happened to them? What has happened to them is climate change. The place is so dry, it's uninhabitable for many uh, people who can't have, uh, you have to walk, walk really far for water uh, as a human as well as for the animals even more so. Um, and then the trees, the, the obviously as a result of lack of rain, there's, there's very few trees. And thirdly, as humans, we've, we've, we've put so much uh, strain on the earth. And as much as we can go into a whole other debate whether in the, in, into the whole what these fossils are, but having seen uh, like a, a giant fossil of, of an elephant that used to be alive, mm-hmm. what if that happens to us? And we have to not wait and see and, and wait wait and see. We have to have action now. And so the small things do have an impact. Like what Rabia says, it's an ecosystem. Even the ant has a role to play. Even even a rat has a role to play. Um, even uh, a, a snake has a role to play. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we have we have this uh, joke in the family that our neighbors thought we we're witchcraft. Uh, we had witchcraft because we had a snake, a rat, a tortoise, and a black cat in the house. <laughs> and because because to to like my parents, any or my father especially, anything is a pet. You know, you it's an animal. And, and it's an animal, and if you can take good care of it, and you're supposed to take good care of it, then take care of it. Uh, but uh, but we have this we have this thing where, okay, uh, uh, because the, the the snake is evil, you kill it. I mean, that, there's nothing in the Quran that says you have to kill a snake. There's nothing then that says you have to kill a snake. Uh, as as much as um, if if you've encroached in the wild, stay away from the snake. Push it out of the house. Uh, find find a distraction. You can actually there's so many tricks to keep snakes out of your house if you don't want them in your house. But then our, our immediate response is kill the snake. Ask questions later. Yeah, I think we need to do more to be creative with how we deal. Uh, we need to be creative. We need to be wise. We need to be sophisticated, you know, with how we deal with um, the, the living creatures that, that are around us. And I, on that note, I wanted to move on to, our, to the next section where I, I want to ask, what can we do as not just as Muslims, but as people in general to aid conservation? What can uh, tourists do who are coming to, um, uh, to go on safari, for instance, uh, Rabia? Uh, what can they do to um, help make sure that the, although they're going on safari that they're not damaging their um the, the you know the the environment and that they're actually helping to sustain the environment and what can we do uh to, to you know to, to to prevent pollution and to prevent like uh, environmental damage in other ways so that we can protect the environment um you know they say charity begins at home and that's also where change begins and if we want to see a change uh, for the sake of future generations, our children, our grandchildren, then we need to begin at home. And I want to say that we've become very wasteful as a society. You know, we, we're we so used to single-use plastics. Like, I, I was really 
surprised that we have a lot of functions where you would expect, you know, even environmental uh, functions, sometimes it's a conservation conference, sometimes it's a Muslim gathering. And these are three of my top events that I would not expect to see things like single-use plastics um, being implemented. You would expect to see plates, you know, like actual plates and glasses that people can drink out of. But because it's easier to just use and throw away, we're doing that, but we're we're learning that from home because our parents are doing that now. You know, like my uh, my my own family, not yeah. who I live with, but my own family who live overseas. They live in that environment and that culture where if you have a party or you have a family dinner, everyone's coming over. Who's going to bother with the dishes? Let's just buy some plastic plates. And I said, why don't we just use paper ones? You know, yeah. and just. Switching to that makes a huge difference. Of course, it still has an impact on the environment because there are trees being cut down to create that paper, but at least it's biodegradable. It's the very least that we can do to ensure that we're not harming uh, you know, the marine environment. Every piece of plastic that you throw away ends up in the ocean. It, it, it's not going to go into uh, a dustbin and a recycling center somewhere. Most of it ends up in landfill. Mm-hmm. And from landfill, a lot of it gets blown into river systems. And from the rivers it gets taken into the ocean and that's why right now the marine ecosystem and wildlife is suffering so greatly because there's so much plastic that just can't go away and we continue to create more um i believe the latest statistics uh is in uh in europe they're now making a million plastic bottles a minute just think about that a lot one million plastic bottles a minute, which you're only going to use once and throw away. Okay, this is wasteful. It is israf. We should be careful about that because we will be held accountable for it. And we should try and make those changes in ourselves. Begin with yourself. Buy a reusable water bottle and refill it. It's not very hard to do. It takes five seconds. I have like 50 reusable bottles in my home and I keep giving them out to people because it's important. It's important for us not to encourage single-use plastics. And I'm so glad as Kenya, we banned that. Uh, We're still trying to struggle with the plastic bottles um, and straws. You know, straws are so dangerous for wildlife. I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, we we actually found um, an oryx. You know, there was a famous story of a lioness that adopted an oryx. Yes. I don't know if you know about it. Yes. And she looked after it. But then KWS came in because they were concerned. Obviously, it's a young foal. Uh, you know, he can't uh, can't feed from a lioness. So it's not getting any milk. So they decided to then take it on after about two weeks because it was becoming very weak. Um, and so it was where I wa- where I was working um, at the orphanage. And, you know, mashallah, he lived a long life, you know, very big, healthy bull. Um, but one day he just dropped dead and we couldn't figure out what happened because he was just fine, you know, very active the previous day, just dropped dead. And they did a necropsy, which is like post-mortem for animals. <laughs> they just found his gut filled with plastic because the tourists that were going there kept on throwing their plastic wrappers into his enclosure. Change has to begin with within ourselves. Let's make ethical choices. You can't plead, plead ignorance on the day of judgment. Allah will ask you, and not only Allah, before Allah asks you, those animals are going to ask you, what wrong did I do to you that you contributed to me being tortured in this way? Hunting safaris, 
right is one of them and obviously riding uh, riding elephants it's really cruel these baby elephants are torn apart from their families beaten half to death deprived of food and water for up to a week so that they can obey orders and submit um and, and just crush well. you know? the, the tigers in the entire tigers Yeah. Yeah, that's also another big thing. A lot of uh a lot of Muslims are are getting married and on their honeymoons they're going to Thailand, mm-hmm. which is great, you know, Allahumma zid wa barik, but mm-hmm. when you're going to Thailand can you not ride an elephant and can you not take selfies with those monkeys on the beach and can you not take selfies with those tigers because they're drugged, mm-hmm. their teeth are pulled out and their claws are pulled out while they're fully conscious in most cases and they are beaten to submission. um and there is video evidence of this there is not a single facility that uh has these offers to pet a tiger to feed uh, bottle feed a baby lion cub that is not involved in severe cruelty to animals but you know also other let's think of the marine animals as well you know uh, as seaworld is a big issue i i can't one thing even... one thing i like about you know even i mean going back to kenya related to that is that that the alhamdulillah you know I, i don't know if it's by design or just by coincidence but most of our tourism attractions that have wildlife um are not designed intentionally to 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 keep these wildlife um in cages mm-hmm. and exploit them but rather uh like i grew up going to the animal orphanage in the understanding that they're not supposed to be permanently there of course and and the animal orphanage was uh, the only reason they let people in is for it to be able to earn money in order to be able to rescue more animals and not um and uh while well, the the what do you call it um the living circumstances were confined mm-hmm. and uh, at least better now than they were before but not for the intention of we're here for the pleasure of, of of humans but rather hey we found uh like for example with the oryx this oryx was found it's in need so let's put it uh, put it somewhere and the tourists who came to see that oryx um were coming not necessarily by uh, uh it, that that intention but just by the fact that the animal has to be protected mm-hmm. whereas like i've got i've traveled around the world and i just cannot get the heart to go into a zoo zoo i also because the same thing i hate the zoos. animal the yeah. animal has been transported from one Natural side of the world to the yeah. other and it's freezing but in in kenya alhamdulillah many of the places we have even when you think of um for example uh, the giraffe center which uh, the kids go to mm-hmm. uh, it's If a lot of people I have friends who tell me oh I want to go to the giraffe zoo and it always confuses me like giraffe zoo what giraffe zoo say so, oh you know the place where you pet giraffes like okay but it's it wasn't designed as that it was it's designed as an educational center so I I don't naturally think about it as a zoo it's designed for uh what do you call it there's there's a larger enclo- uh, there's a larger enclosure yeah, and those animals uh, are and there ha- for entertainment i mean they're they're there they because they're yeah. Yeah. so there's no yeah. circus so in kenya we don't have animal circuses mm-hmm. uh, and we don't have like uh, large scale aquariums where uh, like uh, a 
a water, like a, a, a recreational area for marine life. It's yeah. more of you either go to the marine park or you go to the national park. And uh, like the uh, uh, Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, where they have mm. the baby elephants, they're there to protect the elephants and not it's it wasn't des- it's not designed there in order to exploit them and i i really appreciate that and uh we're, we're very fortunate to have that and so when the tourist comes even an example like david Childrick, they think of it it's kind of considered like a donation and not necessarily yeah. like hey come see this monkey and you're and you're not allowed to feed the animals there's a rule specifically that you're not allowed to feed them so even for muslim travelers but back to the question that you asked Mm -hmm. is what is our responsibility and there's the small actions that rabia mentioned like just don't simply just don't be messy and throw your plastic everywhere even if you're using plastic don't use plastic but if you do just be responsible uh, at the least bit but at the same time more and more hotels are nowadays conscious on that and uh and are conscious on their environment. And so you actually have awards that have been given to hotel, eco-friendly hotels. So when you look for places, look for that, in, uh, uh, yeah. shop around. And for me, even as Halal Safaris, it's been a challenge because one of, uh, other than Halal, uh, the other core pillar that uh, I live by is being Tayyib. And Tayyib is being wholesome and being healthy and being just pure. And, and I've had somebody who say, can you book me at this hotel? Like, well, I haven't, I don't really think they're that nice to their staff or their yeah. environment. So I'm, I'm not comfortable selling them. And it's it's been hard for me, to be perfectly honest. It's been quite a business challenge because uh, you will have people that particularly want to visit a certain national park or a certain hotel and to turn them away and say, I'm sorry, I can't offer you that, but I can take you somewhere else. And I, I get a lot of no's and no, thank you. We're not interested. That's more expensive. Uh, no, thank you. We're not interested because we really wanted to go here instead. And uh, uh, one example is uh, Masai Mara. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people say, I want to go to the Masai Mara, but it's I find it so exploitative because some of the Masai Mara is a, this, uh, the Mara ecosystem. So the same wildlife you see in the Masai Mara National Park are the same wildlife you're going to see in the in the in the conservancies around it. Mm-hmm. But when during the high season people insist on going to the Masai Mara, you know you have the alternative of just going to nearby conservancies so yeah. that you avoid you avoid all the all the noise and pollution for these animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's it, in some places the conservancies are going to cost you a little bit more, but uh, they're better for they're, they're better treatment for the wildlife. You get a more private time. You actually get better photos uh, because you get a one-on-one. There's no other tourists scramming like ten safari cars all crowding to see this one lion and its cub. Uh, but it, it's it's overwhelming. Imagine if it was you being the wildlife. So just be more open. Don't don't think about just the stereotypical places you find on the internet and yeah. decide that this is where I want to go. But uh, look for other options. And there are it's the same lion. It's the same <laughs> lion you're going to see inside the national park as outside. But at least at least you're not going to overwhelm them during high season. Yeah, I think we could talk about this for hours. But I think just to be sort of cognizant. Um, and to wrap things up, we can say that no, not only do we need to be careful as Muslims where we get our income from, but we should also be careful how we spend our income and the effects of, of, of our spending on, on uh, the environment as a whole. So just now let's wrap up. Let's just to wrap up. I'm, I'm just going to have one quick fire question for all of us. So I, 
uh, I'm not cheating or anything, but I already have my answer ready because I just devised the question. So the question is, um, what is your favorite safari moment? So I'll give you my favorite safari moment. It was um, it was at a ranch and it was a horseback safari. And what I loved about it was you're, you're on horseback and it's it's in the open. You're not you're not confined. You can go anywhere you want. And what I loved about it is you had I had you know the, the sun on my back and you know the wind in my hair and we we could um, we were passing by all these herds of animals that were just grazing so peacefully like there were zebras and there were giraffes and everything was at at such peace. There was no conflict. It wasn't like in a city where you know um, you need to be careful um, when you're driving or or anything because everything was where it needed to be. And I think, to me, that was the most profound safari moment I've ever had. Um, what about you, uh, Samia? Yeah, I, I, I love that question, actually. It's it's hard to know exactly when, because I feel like every safari moment is just, uh, what do you call it? it it's um, it's eye-opening and wholesome. But one particular time, I remember, is uh, in Lamu. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had... Um, that then uh, like a senior officer in tourism who couldn't believe me that there's wildlife in Lamo. And uh-huh. he's like, there's no way. And I, and I talked to a friend, a colleague who had an heli- a helicopter. Mm-hmm. I said, we, sh- we should take him on a ride. He should see the wildlife. And he had only two hours. So he couldn't go, he couldn't do the whole safari drive. So, so that was the only way to go on that safari mm-hmm. to show him the wildlife. And so, um, I've never done an aerial safari uh, in Lamu. So we had always seen the, the wildlife from land. So I was equally excited. I think I was more, um, more what do you call it? I was more shocked than he was because I knew we had wildlife, but I've never seen them in the air. And uh, so we flew over, um, it was, it's called uh, the Amu Ranch. And just going over a place where I've grown up, and over the air, and you know, if, for those who don't know, but Lamo is an island that everybody thinks is just the beach, and everybody's just so used to. And just within one minute, mm-hmm. uh, we were uh, we were seeing um, giraffe. You had the buffalo, you had the zebra, and and seeing it from the air. So as much as I've been to so many safaris, and I feel like everyone is special, but I, here I was trying to impress somebody. So that's what I found. I'm trying to impress this guy who doesn't believe me that there's wildlife. And I was the one who was getting impressed because I had never seen them from the air. And it was my first time doing that. So that was really exciting for me. Uh, Rabia? Yeah, mine is a little bit different. Um, as you know, I don't really do the traditional sort of safari because I, I work in conservation and I work around rangers and with rangers. Um, so I camp out a lot. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, sometimes I've, I'm very fortunate to be able to experience um, lodges, which are really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I like being in the outdoors and I like being in a tent where um, you're more exposed to wildlife and the sounds at night, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's one place where I don't pitch a tent, which is not far from Lamu, actually. Uh, it's a place in around Kipini, which is at the coast, a coastal forest in Kenya. And uh, we had just come back from a patrol, a full day patrol. And we were driving back to camp about seven o'clock in the evening. And I saw this cow on the side of the pathway uh, or road um, and I stopped the car and I said to the guys, I'm like, what's this cow doing here? That's really random. Uh, where's the rest of the herd? So we get out of the car 
um, and the cow stands up, had a broken hind leg, uh-huh. uh, probably from falling into a hole or something. So must have gotten left behind from the rest of the herd. And uh, I just said to the guys, luckily we had a pickup. So I said to them, well, we can't leave him here because he's going to get eaten by something. <laughs> so we picked up this huge cow loaded him onto the pickup and drove to camp. The camp wasn't that far from where we found the cow. And uh, I just tied him to a tree, which wasn't very far from where I was sleeping. Now, when I'm there, I tend to sleep outside, Mm -hmm. just on a sleeping mat with a sleeping bag because it's quite hot and humid in the coastal weather. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't use a tent or anything. um, And then mosquitoes don't really bother me. You don't get very many in that area anyway. So... Here I am in my sleeping bag out in the open and I'm knocked out because we've had such a hard day. And then at around 2 a.m. I just hear the we had one of the rangers who's on night watch and he starts banging a fan saying Simba Simba. And I'm like, oh, what? what's going on? Simba I'm like, means lion. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. So, so he's like shouting lion, lion. In Swahili, and I get up and I'm really groggy, and I'm like, "What's going on?" And he's like, "Oh, the Kuna Simba, there's a lion." And I'm like, "What? Are you kidding? <laughs> no, there isn't. Go back to sleep, man." And he's like, "I'm telling you, it was right here. He came for the cow, and this cow, I promise you, was like less than 20 meters from where I was sleeping." So I get up, and then we get into the car, and I've got my spotlight, um, and we see this lion just like peering at us from the forest oh, and I'm like gosh. right that's it I'm sleeping inside now <laughs> so so I get into the ranger's barracks and I fall asleep but in the morning I went to check like where I was sleeping this lion had gone right around my sleeping bag and to the cow and didn't do a thing to me so for me that was just the most special experience wait what um, happened to the cow and I, I'll never forget it Oh, oh, the cow, the cow was fine. We locked him in a store because then we didn't want anything to happen to him. Obviously, with the noise, the lion ran away. But we locked the, the in a store and the next day we just uh, wrapped up his leg with some uh, pieces of cloth dipped in flour and water, which is kind of like a instant cast thing when it dries. Um, and he was fine after that, just healed up. That is one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Don't in sleep my life. next to a cow. Yeah, that Don't is one of the coolest things I've ever yes, heard. Ever. Life lessons. Life lessons. Okay. And I think on that note, we can we can uh, bring this conversation to an end. So thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you, Jazakallah, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. All of the links and resources mentioned can be found in our show notes on sacredfootsteps.org. You can find us on social media as Sacred Footsteps and Twitter as S Footsteps.